Hi, I'm your host, Dave Kemp, and this is Future Ear Radio. Each episode, we're breaking down one new thing, one cool new finding that's happening in the world of hearables, the world of voice technology. How are these worlds starting to intersect? How are these worlds starting to collide? What cool things are going to come from this intersection of technology? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. All right, so we have a little bit of a different episode this time around. This is the first in-person podcast that I've ever done. I got my roadcaster equipment here so that I can start to do these kinds of in-person interviews. And the first person that I wanted to do now that I have the equipment to do an in-person interview is none other than AU Bankitis, Dr. AU Bankitis. Uh, so welcome on. I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a while. And uh, now that we have the equipment, we can do it. So let's just start. Introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us about who you are and what you do. So, um, AU Bankitis, that's my first name is not my real name. It's actually Alkse. It's Lithuanian. Got the nickname um, when I was in college. Um, But the interesting thing about me, Dr. AU Bankitis, is you're looking at somebody who, A, had zero plans of ever going to college, um, let alone pursue a PhD. Number two, um, when I was a junior in college, I had uh, decided, oh, it'd be great to be an audiologist until I found out you had to have a master's degree. So I almost changed <laughs> um, my major. And then at one point in my career, when I was a little bit lost and wasn't sure what I wanted to do, I amicably left a job and figured I'm probably not going to be an audiologist. So <laughs> I've tried to leave a field. <laughs> no offense, I love audiology, but I think that's one of the most interesting things <laughs> that I laugh about, thinking, wow, you know, I love audiology, but uh, tried to leave it a couple times. <laughs> um, so how did you even get into audiology? I mean, where did that, what road led you to that? So the funny thing is, um, once I decided uh, to go, uh, my dad convinced me to go to college. I, I basically, literally, my plan after high school was to move to New York you know, get a job, meaning waiting tables. I loved football and I wanted to be an announcer for football. And I figured I'll just figure out a way to do it. So my dad was like, hey, you know, long story short, uh, don't you think you'd have a better chance at that if you went to college and actually got a communications degree? So that's the only reason I ended up at Cleveland State University, because I grew up on the west side of Cleveland, Fairview Park, and about a month before the fall quarter started, that's when I applied, got accepted, and figured <laughs> I'll try one quarter. Um, so with a communications major, you had to take certain requirements. So I had to take like a spe- like a communication disorders intro class, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is cool. So then I thought I was going to be a speech language pathologist, a very probably similar story to most of my colleagues. And then when I had to take intro to audiology, it's the infamous Frederick Martin textbook where I open up to the page where they have the dime and on top of the dime, they have the three ossicles. And I just said, this is freaking cool and just loved it. Uh, audiology to me was more black and white, very scientific And I simply decided that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you do have a little bit of a scientific brain, I would say. A little and, bit. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we... We, I say we as in uh, the Kemp, so um, my dad and mom and Michael, my brother, um, you know, we were at the Lieberger uh, Award Ceremony, mm. and, and we'll talk about this more, but um, you, I love this the award speech that you gave, um, and, it, and it helped to kind of inform how I wanted to do this conversation, because you outlined, that you said there were three BKs, quote, BKs, that helped shape uh in your kind of career trajectory. And the first one, and I feel like this is a good place to start with kind of like the, the throughput here, um, is this professor that you had that really nudged you toward getting your PhD. So can you kind of just walk me through, okay, you had this epiphany, ah, audiology, pretty interesting. At what point did you decide, not only do I want to go and pursue audiology, I want to get a PhD in audiology. 
So in my junior year, I did try to change majors and I actually went to a, the counseling department where you take all these different tests and it just cracked me up because, you know, it spit out everything, you know, like you, you should be a speech language pathologist or audiologist. I'm like, okay, I guess the universe is telling me this is the path you need to take. Mm -hmm. So uh, reluctantly, I'm like, I can't believe I have to go get a master's degree because that was the requirement. So when I started the graduate program at Cleveland State University, I didn't even go to my undergraduate ceremony because it was on Sunday and the next day I was starting graduate school because I just wanted to graduate as quickly as possible um, and see patients and do all that fun stuff. Well, there was a newly hired assistant professor in Bartik at Bamna who um, uh was great and by the second quarter um because i had to take a couple classes uh from her obviously she quickly pulled me aside one day and just said you should seriously consider pursuing a phd and her saying that i sort of laughed at first like who, who are you talking to <laughs> and that quick comment um I remember all during the weekend, I would hear her say it and just go, I can't believe she said that to me. You know, I can't believe she said that to me. Why did she say that to me? Um, I never thought I was perhaps smart enough or in my head, I just, that wasn't part of my plan. So I never thought about it. But within a relatively short period of time, you know, her and I started doing research and um, I realized that, yeah, you know, this is probably something that I need to explore. And um, she was extremely influential in, um, you know, inspiring me to continue my educational studies. And she actually came from the University of Cincinnati. So that was one of the schools that I applied to. And I ended up changing, uh, choosing the University of Cincinnati for a couple of reasons, um, namely because uh, uh, she was able to hook me up or the program was able to assign <laughs> a mentor to me at that time um dr keith who i never met and didn't really know much about <laughs> but yeah. uh um so that's how uh university of cincinnati basically came into play so when we were kind of talking through before we started recording you know we were coming up with like some of the different themes that we might want to talk about and something that you've been a pretty big proponent about lately uh and and you wanted to talk about on this is imposter phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And I find this to be so interesting because anyone that knows you, you, you don't um, on the surface seem like somebody that would have this. Uh, and, and that just is surely speaking of probably not being aware of how pervasive it is. But I just find this to be interesting that you had mentioned the first time that you really started to feel this was right around this time in your career and you've had bouts of it, I guess you would say, throughout your career. And I just, again, think that someone that's as accomplished as you, those of us who are coming up now can look to you and I think it resonates to say, wait, you've had this. And so I just want to give you an, an opportunity to kind of talk through that. So can you just share how this all, I guess, originated? Well, I think, and I didn't know you know, you feel what you feel and you sometimes don't know if it means anything other than that's what you're feeling. And I, because I was never going to go to college, I think pursuing a PhD, um, getting accepted, um, it, it did freak me out a little bit because I felt, I never felt like I was smart enough um, and thought, my God, I have to work 10 times harder to make sure that I succeed. Um, I had a couple of siblings who, pursued PhDs, um, but I always looked at them as, man, they're super uber smart. And I just never put myself in that same category. So that, that was, that was part of it. Um, I was also a little bit concerned about, uh, cause uh, the University of Cincinnati's program was outstanding. And one of the things that, um, intimidated me was you not only had to, okay, um, you know, you're getting your PhD, but you also have to pick, you know, three different minors. And one of the minors that they forced you to pick, which meant you had to take at least seven courses in, was statistics. And I just thought, oh, my God, you know, I'm not, a, you know, calculus, you know, wizard. And that sort of, so all of that just intimidated me. So that's where it started. 
where it really kicked in was it was before the age of 30 because I got my PhD when I was 27. But right before the age of 30, okay, so I graduated with a PhD. I, uh, while at the University of Cincinnati, I received the Distinguished Dissertation Award for my research, which is a pretty big deal. They choose one dissertation topic out of every department, medicine, engineering, whatever. Yeah, so, you know, kind of a big deal. You know, (laughs) I walked around with a crown for about a week. But anyway, um, you know, so you get these research awards. I published nearly 20 works, um, a lot of it in the area of HIV AIDS and infection control that were peer reviewed or book chapters. Um, I ended up developing a niche expertise in infection control. And I was, you know, being asked to do a lot of either state level or national level talks. And the best way to basically describe imposter phenomenon is to, uh, let you know what was going in my head during that time. So despite all of these successes and accomplishments, there were two things that were basically going on. Number one, I was unconsciously um, or subconsciously attributing my accomplishments to something other than my own ability. So my dissertation topic was HIV and AIDS. So I automatically was like, well, of course I got the Distinguished Dissertation Award because this is such a, it's a new disease, mm-hmm. it's a new virus. Perhaps it would be politically incorrect for them not to choose my right topic. Right place, right time. Correct. It was just timing, hot topic, awesome. <laughs> um, and then I started thinking, man, how lucky was I? And people are just being nice and, um, you know, That's what was going through my head. And then the second thing um, that I was doing, I was overworking and overexerting to the point where I assigned astronomically high standards for my own work. So there was a tendency for me to obsess about everything had to be perfect. I agonized over the smallest flaws, always focusing on what could have been done better Mm -hmm. (laughs) instead of looking at the overall picture going, hey, this was pretty good. Um, But most importantly, and this is very critical for people to understand imposter phenomenon, I was actually ignoring um, constructive criticism. And the reason I didn't want to hear it, and constructive criticism isn't bad. Yeah. But the reason I didn't want to hear it is because I perceive that any kind of feedback like that uh, was an indicator of my ineptness. Mm -hmm. So you start to not listen to any of that. So at the end of the day, my head was filled with so much self-doubt that there would be times I would like be on my way to a presentation or right before I had to present and go, holy crap, how the hell did I get here? I don't belong here. Um, I think somebody made a mistake. And so much that I constantly depreciated my own value uh, by never giving myself any credit. So basically, um, the whole definition of imposter phenomenon is chronic self-doubt due to the inability to own your own success. And man, it's real. I had constant chronic self-doubt and I was incapable of owning my own success and it's pretty scary (laughs) when you get in that situation. This sort of reminds me of what we're seeing from Naomi Osaka, that young female tennis star who has come out saying she's been battling this really crippling self-doubt and anxiety, you know, top of her game world superstar and She's not above that, I guess. And then with you, it's sort of analogous, like in your trajectory, um, you know, within your academic career, you have the best dissertation, like literally the best dissertation across all the PhDs in your class, um, but that you're still saying that there was a lot of this imposter phenomenon. So I just find this to be really interesting, and it seems to me like the way that the only way that you can really solve this is from within, right? There is something that researchers, and you're correct, but there is something that researchers call a cycle of distress. And this cycle of distress is more typical of women. And it, and imposter phenomenon does happen in both men and women, although research cl- clearly shows that it's like at least double 
you're going to see it twice more often in women than in men. And then the other interesting thing is it actually manifests differently in men versus women. So um, research shows that men uh, basically tend to attribute success to ability, mm-hmm. whereas women tend to attribute success to listening and working hard. So men and women, as a result of that, um, are going to have different triggers. So for men, the trigger of imposter phenomenon tends to be fear of being unsuccessful, mm. um, which is why a, a common coping mechanism is for them to choose to be in a place where they can be a big fish in a small pond. Mm. Whereas for women, uh, the trigger tends to be an achievement-related task. Like even applying for a job can trigger imposter phenomenon. Um, there's this interesting uh, research statistic that shows men will apply if there's ten bullet points of you know requirements for a job. Men will apply as long as they meet four. Women will not apply unless they meet all ten. Wow! So that that's the big yeah, mind difference, the gender difference. So women because because of the way they they approach it they they tend to fall into what's called this um, cycle of distress which is important to appreciate if you want to manage your imposter phenomenon before I talk about that just real quickly like according to I think it was the International Journal of Behavioral Sciences they said that nearly 70 percent of adults go through you know this um, crisis of confidence that could be uh, consistent with imposter phenomenon. So there's nothing wrong with having these feelings. Yeah. It's just understanding that it's common and it's real and, and there are ways to manage it. And in order for me to manage mine, um, it's important, let me just break in a nutshell, this cycle of distress. So for women, and that include that includes me, I'm a, I'm a woman. <laughs> um, um, uh, an achievement-related task would be assigned, and that would basically trigger the self-doubt in your head, like, okay, and then that creates a lot of anxiety. And then that anxiety ends up causing you to over-prepare, overwork. Interestingly, in some cases, it can also manifest um, as an initial phase of prolonged procrastination, where you then eventually, you know, end up experiencing this extremely intense last-minute rate of over but at the end of the day, you're over-preparing, overworking. And then once the task is completed um, and delivered, there's a tendency to discount feedback. Um, and as the feedback is discounted, the voices in your head tell you that you succeeded because of um, you put in so many hours, you burned the midnight oil. Um, it was lucky that you got it done the last minute. And basically, uh, this record in, in your head ultimately diminishes the validity of your achievement. And and with each new uh, achievement-related task, the cycle of distress begins over and over again until you get to the point where you just simply cannot own your success. Um, so for me, um, I call it my ABCs. And what's important is this is what worked for me. Um, and um, I actually got out of this rut about 10 years ago. But then... Um, it resurfaced um, again, and um, I had to do a couple things to get over it. But I, I think what would be interesting is to break down um, what I would go through internally, yeah. like when I was asked to do an infection control presentation. Perfect. So I can do an infection control presentation in my sleep. Yeah. I've been talking about infection control since 1995, mm-hmm. okay? Literally wrote the book on it in yeah. Control in the hearing clinic. Yeah. And I feel extremely confident. Like if somebody stopped me in the hall, I'd be like, blah, 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 and it's like no big deal. Yeah. As soon as somebody would call and go, hey, would you, would you be willing to do a presentation? As soon as I said yes, okay, it created a lot of anxiety because suddenly I would be like, oh, shoot. Like, I wonder how many people are going to be attending, who's going to be there. Another thing that happened early on in my career that actually contributed to this is I would not only over-prepare, you know, and then go, okay, once you get on the plane, you're okay. I remember going to a conference and, you know, registering because I'm like, oh, okay, I wonder who else is presenting. And when I saw, like, a list of three people who I'm like, oh, my God, these are real researchers. These are real audiologists. <laughs> These are people that I, I 
almost had a quasi panic attack where I'm like, I can't believe I'm on the same program. And that led me to go to my hotel room to basically um, write out a script. Okay, a one hour presentation, if you write out word for word what you're going to say, you're talking about, you know, 30 pages. And that's what I started doing because I'm just like, I can't, I, in order for me to be on the same stage as these individuals, I need to sound smart. I need to look smart. I need to do all these things. And I would obsess and obsess and obsess. I would never go out to dinner with colleagues before a presentation because I, I would have to practice my presentation because it had to be perfect. And it was almost like I would memorize a one-hour presentation. And if I got one word wrong while I was talking – um, practicing in the hotel room, I would start all over again. I mean, it was just obsessive awfulness. And then once I presented, I was done. Yeah, it wasn't so bad. I was so relieved. But the reason I was relieved is because, A, I was tired because I didn't sleep the night before. I worked too hard. And I just was like, oh, my God, I finally am not putting myself in a position where people are going to say, well, she doesn't belong here. Like, what are you doing here? And I just remember the only fun time after a presentation was getting on a plane and being able to sleep mm -hmm. <laughs> on the way home. Knocking back a couple cocktails on the way home. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it was during a AAA when I had to do like an ALD talk and I was actually working for Oak Tree. It was very early on. And I remember um, the Oak Tree gang was like, come out to dinner with us. Come out to, I'm like, I can't, I can't. And that's when I finally realized I cannot believe I cannot go to dinner with my like colleagues and coworkers because I'm obsessing over mm -hmm. perfection. And, and that's when I'm like, this this shit's got to stop or it's, it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna kill me so I was able to manage it but when it resurfaced recently I had to take um, additional steps and um, this is where the ABCs come in so the first thing I had to do um, is acknowledge it and I think anybody who's experiencing um, uh, imposter phenomenon feelings and there's a really good 20 uh, item survey that was created by Dr. Uh, Patricia Rose Chance. You can look her up. She's the queen of imposter phenomenon. She was the psychologist who uh, first started talking about it in 1978. You can take this scale, and it's not a diagnostic scale, but it's basically designed to allow you to compare how you compare to others when it comes to feelings of imposterism. So when I took that scale, I was like, oh, oh, wow. You know, I have some things that I need to <laughs> obviously work on. <laughs> so so one of it was acknowledging it. And um, actually part of my acknowledgement was um, talking about it. So in 2021, I was actually trying to back out of a presentation. Um, uh, it was during the Dr. Jill Wow thing. I was supposed to talk about negotiations, which I can totally talk about negotiations. But I was so... Um, down a deep, dark rab rabbit hole of self-doubt that I finally had to tell Jill, like, I, I don't think I can do a, a presentation. And she was like, okay. And she asked me, is there any other topic you want to talk about? And finally, after a week, I said, you know what? I really need to talk about imposter phenomenon because I st had started reading up more about it yeah. and started realizing how it paralyzed me. So, you know, acknowledging it, talking about it, but you know, you can't talk yourself out of imposter phenomenon. So the other thing I had to do is break the cycle of distress. There's a really good book um, that I would recommend for women. It's by Valerie Young. And she's the author of The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women. And one of the first things, you know, she suggests in breaking the cycle is, you know, start out small. And it says, and basically she says, when somebody uh, pays you a compliment, say thank you and then shut up. And let me tell you, you do that little experiment, I couldn't believe how many times people would say something to me, and I would go, oh, thanks, but, right. oh, thanks, but, oh, well, I had a lot of help. Just self-deprecation all the time. Yeah, and you start, like, when you start consciously going, wow, I can't believe I'm, I'm doing that automatically, it just makes you aware, and it's not the magic that pill that's going to fix everything. But the other thing that I started um, doing, and again, these are things that work for me. Um, <laughs> 
you have to understand a little bit about, I guess, brain plasticity, which is the ability of the brain to develop new brain cells, form new connections, and functionally adapt as a result of experience. Um, so I always appreciated brain plasticity, and I came across the work of a psychologist and neuroscientist who um, got all his degrees from Harvard, so I assumed he was a pretty smart guy. But his name is Richard Davidson, he, and he's actually the founder of the Center of Healthy Minds in Wisconsin. And what his research found was that people become more resilient. You know, there's people around here that, man, water off a duck's back. There's other people, they spill their milk and it like ruins their entire week. And a lot of, um, he, he was doing a lot of this kind of neuroscience research. And he found that people became more resilient when they have increased interactions between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And the amygdala is basically your uh, brain's emotion center that processes threatening and fearful stimuli as well as anxiety. And what he found is the way that you strengthen this and research shows it is through what's called mindful breathing. And I say all this because in the past, people would tell me, do some mindful breathing. And I'd be like, okay, I would do it for like 30 seconds and said, screw you. I don't have time for this, right? Because yes, it's that like. That is very much uh, on point for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then you're just like, what the heck am I doing? And But when I started reading his research and he connected the dots going, okay, this is what's actually happening you sort of give it a bigger chance. And so that's what I used to do. When I used to feel overwhelmed at work, I would stop and just do some mindful breathing. And it really created a nice anchor to be in the present, in the now, and just to chill out and and, and not worry about um, that stuff. The other thing that I had to do um, was control the self-doubt. And this is gonna, I, you know, we all have what I call challenging ants in our head, which are these Mm -hmm. automatic negative thoughts. And I had a lot of them. And I literally one day, um, when I was preparing for an infection control presentation and I was freaking out, um, going, people are going to think I'm dumb. People aren't going to believe me. And this was during the COVID pandemic. Um, cause that you would think, Oh my God, AU is going to be so prepared to respond. And I was, but I think what people didn't see was what was happening behind the curtain, you know, every day, just going, what if I say the wrong thing? Is it going to mean that their business is going to shut down? I mean, those are like the weird things that go through your head. So I literally had to sit down and I had to write a list Mm -hmm. of, everything associated with infection control that made me knowledgeable and you start writing it and you find you you, I, I felt silly but after a while you have this physical piece of paper that's evidence of why are you self-doubting yourself so much and then I had to do what I call you know there's always that elevator pitch like If you're involved in business, make sure you have a 20 second, you know, pitch that you can tell somebody what you do, what your business is, blah, 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 practice it. So I decided to make an elevated you pitch because I'm like, okay, I need to create something that I can repeat to myself if I start feeling like out of control, um, where imposter phenomenon is just the chronic self-doubt is going to paralyze me. And, and literally I had to do this before every presentation at one point. Uh, but basically the message I had to tell myself is I, I had to take a deep breath and just go, Hey, you, you know, this shit. And that's what I had to say out loud. Mm -hmm. And then once I said that, I was like, okay. And I was able to move on, um, in a productive, um, manner. So those are the things that work for me. There's so many things available out there. Um, uh, so, you know, even going to a, I I guess a psychologist or psychiatrist, I mean, whatever, but these are the the things that actually, uh, worked for me and have helped me tremendously. Yeah. I, I feel like we've all probably had a semblance of this. It varies in the degree of severity from person to person, you know, instances where people might find themselves in a situation where they don't really feel qualified to be on the same stage as someone and feel underwhelmed by their own accomplishments when you're comparing them to other people. And like, for me, like one of my big takeaways from this conversation is 
the importance of finding a balance of being aspirational, but not getting too caught up in like, quote unquote, keeping up with the Jetsons. Like we all bring a unique and value perspective to the table. And it's simply different from those around one, you know, you or one another. Agreed. And so I'll, in an appropriate context, if you're Feelings associated with imposter phenomena can certainly be a motivator. However, um, when you start getting into this cycle of distress, um, it, it's a huge problem because it comes at a very high cost in the form of living in constant anxiety, which is physically, mentally, emotionally exhausting, um, over-preparing, over-achieving, which usually uh, results to um, burnout. And also, yeah, stifling potential where opportunities arise. So one of the things, um, and to your point, that I also had to do was I had to stop the cycle of over-preparing. And, you know, how do you stop the cycle of over-preparing, you know, when that's all you've done <laughs> for, like tw- for, right. for like 20 years? And part of it was realizing I needed to stop being a perfectionist. And um, perfectionists hold themselves to unrealistically high standards. Um, that does a couple things. It actually makes life less satisfying. Um, even trivial things become stressful. So, you know, because you're focusing on what went wrong versus the overall picture. And uh, like I said, you get emotionally burnt out and tired. Um, and I think what's important for people to understand perfectionism is not the same thing as having a healthy uh, drive to excel. Mm -hmm. You can seek excellence without demanding um, uh, perfection. And Julie Cameron basically has a really nice quote. And she basically says, perfectionism is not a quest for the best. It is a pursuit of the worst in ourselves, the part that tells us that nothing we will do will ever be good enough. So for me, I had to adjust unrealistic standards. So I had to let go of my super high astronomical standards um, and basically tell myself not everything deserves 100% effort. Um, The other thing is I had to set smart, realistic goals that were specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound. So I got to the point where instead of spending... 24 hours on a one-hour infection control presentation that I've already done a hundred (laughs) times, right? I would tell myself, you have two hours, you know, and that's it. And then you're done. And you can't write a script and you can't, you're done. And I sort of had to force myself to do those things. And then I had to really just cut myself some slack by giving myself permission to prepare without perfection. And, um, in that book that I mentioned by Valerie uh, Young, she has a list of rights in the back of her book that I really liked where it says you have the right to make mistakes. You have the right to be wrong. You have the right to have an off day. Um, You have the right to say no without feeling guilty. And you have the right to achieve above or below the expectation of others. And just realizing and then making a plan has just made it so much easier (laughs) (laughs) to live life. (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting. And I wonder if this is a byproduct of just it being more top of mind now that uh, people are acknowledging it, but like I hear it all the time. And I, and I wonder if it's also something that young people, because of the fact that you're not as accomplished, um, you know, you feel like, okay, how can I, how can I be someone that can hold a candle to this person that I'm presenting in front of or behind that has 20 years my senior? But I think it's interesting to hear you say you had mentioned that it resurfaced later in life as well. So it's not something that's a young person. No, it's it's not. And it actually surprised me when it resurfaced and it took me a while to realize that that's what was happening. So, you know, during the pandemic, I mean, you remember when we had to sit there and go, what are we doing? And we decided we're going to send everybody home with pay and just, you know, um, which everybody was making those decisions. So everybody was stressed out. Everybody was unsure. Um, You know, people were like, it, it was just a really, really scary time. So I contributed that 
you know, to, okay, everybody's just stressed out. And, you know, I was upset going, oh my God, you know, I hope the tree is going to be fine. And, you know, <laughs> you know, and I hope our customers are going to be fine. Like, it was just terrible. But what I started realizing was um, one day, you know, at first I thought, God, are you just depressed? You know, because this is sad, you know, because we used to have, um, there was a group of women colleagues. We used to have happy hours um, every week. And, you know, part of it was, you know, somebody was losing a business and you're just like, oh my God, what can we do or, or whatever. And it was just stressful. But what happened to me I assumed it was the pandemic, but what happened to me is I started, you know, every day I was getting multiple phone calls. I was yeah. working remotely from work, more than happy to talk to people. But then when people started asking, hey, you know, we need a we need a presentation, it wasn't for CEU purposes. It was we need to be up to date. And I started getting a little bit overwhelmed simply from the perspective that, um, God, I've been talking about infection control and all my life. And now we have this new thing and it's fluid and it's ever changing. And so I was having a little bit difficulty reading all the CDC stuff and keeping up, but I was doing a fine job. I mean, that's how we figured out the list and disinfect. Like I was on top of it. But slowly those negative feelings started creeping in where I'm like, God, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I tell somebody, and it's so silly that I look back at it now, what? I'm going to tell them to use this disinfectant, and if they don't, their business is going to shut down. But in your head, I was just so concerned that I was going to say the wrong thing that was going to cost somebody their business that I went down a really deep, dark rabbit hole where it got to the point where I... um, and Oak Tree Products didn't know this, but I would say no to presentations. They were remote, but I'm like, no, I couldn't do it because I just simply got paralyzed and I couldn't snap out of it. So I went through that process and then I started reading up and then I started getting the help I needed um, uh, to talk about it. And, and there it was. But it's pretty ironic that something that I've studied for all my life, you know, that I should be most prepared yeah to deliver. I did deliver, but I went down that rabbit hole. Right. (laughs) So it was a dark place (laughs) for a little bit. Yeah. It's, uh, well, it's kind of crazy too. Like just kind of touching on that part of your story is, you know, so you get your, you get your PhD at the height of the AIDS epidemic or right after the AIDS epidemic, you know, so this real topical thing, you know, and then, uh, time goes on, you know, I kind of was joking about how you and Bob taught me the infection control talk. I was in the Wisconsin Dells for like the Wisconsin Hearing Alliance. Uh, I think it was like January or February of 2020. And there was a slide in my presentation that was talking about the importance of infection control, just sort of in passing mentioning the potential for pandemics. And I remember I had people emailing me afterwards as the pandemic broke out people being like did, did you know something <laughs> but my point is is it's like you know so this this thing that you were an expert in um and and you sort of built your expertise on becomes extremely relevant again yeah you know 20 years later yeah. and then i think it's just fascinating though and i think like for me this is so interesting to just hear about is like you were maybe the most qualified person to speak on this specific topic at this specific time, and yet it's still the imposter phenomenon rears its ugly head. Yeah, I just find that interesting. And I, but I think you know what? If you talk to more people um, within our field, I remember polling, and it wasn't it was not a scientific poll, and and whatever. But I did ask like three or four questions from the imposter scale phenomenon. I put it on a closed Facebook group and just said, "Hey, answer these questions." And basically what happens is you're answering questions and you assign a number one to five as to how true that statement is of you. So for example, I often worry about succeeding with a project, even though others around me know I can do it. And then, you know, you assign a score one, that's not true at all for me Two, rarely all the way to five, very true. So long story short, I pulled 220 women audiologists and, um, I was, 85% of them scored 
their scores on those like three or four answers would be consistent with somebody who suffers from imposter phenomenon feelings uh, on a daily basis at a high level. And it just made me go, oh my God. And, and I sat there, I remember talking about imposter phenomenon in a room full of business owners, audiologists who have their own private practice. And we did that exercise, same sort of results. And somebody asked me, well, what does that mean? I go, you know what it means? It means I'm standing in front of a room full of very smart, intelligent women who think anything but about themselves. And it's just, um, and again, it can happen. It happens in men too. And I just think it's, um, life is tough. Life is mm -hmm. busy. Life is whatever. And, and there's just things that we do, whether you're a perfectionist, whether an overachiever, whether, you know, you feel like you have to know everything before you have to make a decision. There's, there's things that I think you sometimes need to take a step back and go, what's my ROI? You know, is my 80% going to be good enough? Because that's what, it, sorry to tell you, but that's what I do at Oak Tree now. And I, <laughs> But I think I'm more productive because, yeah. in, you know, instead of going balls to the walls every day on every project, it's like, okay, this is good enough right now. And, and you know what, my good enough is, is usually good enough, usually you know, good. but there's other times where you do have to put in 110%, but you're, you're able to do that because you, you know how to manage the tank. <laughs> so to speak. So I bet you more people suffer it, uh, experience it uh, more than we think. Yes, that's definitely one of the takeaways I have from this conversation. All right. So I find this to be a very interesting backdrop to your career. Um, let's go back in your story a bit, though. We had been talking about your Lieberger speech and the three BKs. So Number two was Bob Keith, who seemed to have a pretty big impact on you as one of your key mentors. So what does Bob Keith mean to you, and what was that part of your career like? Yeah, so, um, you know, as the recipient of the Samuel F. Lieberger Award, I said there's like a million dots that had to connect, but there were three that were extremely influential in, in helping me give back to the profession of audiology. So we already heard about Bardi Kapamna uh, from Cleveland State. Bob Keith, I don't have the, the words to, um, you know, sew together um, as to what an influencer um, he was in terms of making me a better audiologist, a better researcher, mainly through his example. He had a tough, like, I mean, Dave, you know me, but man, imagine me younger and more opinionated and louder than I currently am. <laughs> it's, it, I, I was quite the handful. And um, he was not only, uh, you know, he wore many hats with me. He taught, he was a professor, so he was my teacher sometimes. Um, he was my, at that time I had to get a CFY. Uh, I was doing my CFY, my clinical fellowship year, working 20 hours, um, every week, um, to become an audiologist while going to school full time. So he was my CFY supervisor. Um, he was involved with research. We wrote a lot of stuff together. So he was like working as a colleague. Um, I didn't have family in Cincinnati, so there's times he was more of an uncle to me, and he was a mentor. So there's just a lot of different um, things that he taught me. And the, and the first one I remember from day one when I met him, he's like, well, you're working with me. He goes, so I'm going to tell you, you know, you're going to give back to the profession of audiology in any way that you can without expecting anything in return, because that's what we do. And he set the expectation. He's like, you're going to volunteer um, for, you know, different organizations and you're going to do whatever it is that you can do. You're going to become active in your state, um, audiology chapter and, um, you're going to do research. You're going to do, I mean, it, it, it just, that, that was lesson one <laughs> and that was the <laughs> expectation. He was also instrumental in coordinating the initial meeting with Dr. Peter Frame, who was the director of the AIDS Treatment Center at University of Cincinnati. And that's the whole reason uh, we were able to collaborate and do some pretty phenomenal, interesting research. But um, working with him really um, inspired my need to educate and advocate. And um, again, he, he's taught me so many lessons, nothing you'll ever see on a syllabus, nothing you'll gain. Right from a course, it was he prepared me um, to be 
a, uh, a free thinker, a leader, a researcher, a colleague, an audiologist. And I think if he weren't, I know if he were not my mentor, I would not have gotten um, as good of an education even yeah. though I got a great education from the University of Cincinnati. Well, so when you say, um, I'm going to give back to the field of audiology, there were probably a lot of instances throughout your career that are representative of that, but there's none more that I can think of than the AAA that never was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably going to make you cry right now just talking about this. Oh, but it's that, such a good program. Such the best program. program that never happened because it was the only program that never happened. The AAA that never was. Oh. The New Orleans 2020 show. Yeah. Um, I just remember being at the Eddie show in Kansas City, and that was right around when we kind of when the music stopped. And, and I remember looking at you and being like, you don't think that AAA is going to get canceled, do you? And I think that the thought hadn't really fully occurred to you yet because you were pretty adamant, like, well it wasn't up to me um but to me and i remember because that eddie conference was right around my birthday Mm -hmm. and uh and i just was i was somewhat surprised that the eddie conference was happening although but then i'm just like okay no big deal i did know that um AAA was monitoring it, and it was interesting because uh, Catherine Palmer, who was president-elect, her and I worked a lot um, throughout the year in preparing the the program uh, along with all the other co-chairs. Um, she called me. She said, hey, I want to talk to you, and I said, okay. And she was so sweet because um, she said, hey, we have a board meeting, and we need to make a decision, but I was just curious to get your thoughts. And I just, I simply told her, I said, well, they had already canceled March Madness. So I was already, yeah. like, um, on a ledge. Yeah, this is not good. <laughs> this is not good. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. But my immediate, I didn't even have to think. Like, my immediate reaction was, if you have to cancel, cancel. It's a pandemic. Like, it's yeah, a pandemic. Right. Like, you know, I love audiology, but I'm not willing to get really sick over it, you know? Right. But no, she... And she, you know, she said, well, thank you for your feedback. And, 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 and I think she was a little bit surprised because she knew how much time and effort it takes to, to plan it. But I'm just like, do what you guys need to do. And so when they canceled it, it wasn't surprising. Um, you know, I had to do my little speech. And what was really awesome was the outpour of people just going, I am so sorry. And, you know, it, it, it was just really sweet. Yeah. Um, but it was such a good program. <laughs> and I just felt bad for a lot of the first time presenters. I'm like, man, you're losing this, this um, opportunity. And I know that they'll, they'll be fine, but it just, yeah, it, pr- it pretty much put things in perspective. And I think what surprised me more, cause um, I'm like, Oh, I'm sure, you know, next year Denver will be in person. And that didn't happen, mm-hmm. you know. So this was a two-year thing. Yeah. And it's still ongoing, but I guess we're just better at um, managing it. But, yeah, with the vaccine and all. But, yeah. But did you feel like that was – was that was there a, you know, a little Bob Keith in your head telling you, you need to step up and do – be a program chair for AAA? Um, did, did that come from that sense of feeling like I need to give back to – the profession, because it's not as if you were getting paid or anything like that. No. I mean, it was totally a volunteer thing, and, and you spent a ton of time on that. Right, and I, I've always given back to the profession in some way. I used to be the, you know, when I first came to Missouri, I, I got on the board. I was, you know, president of the Missouri Academy of Audiology, helped put together the scope meetings. I was on AAA's Government Affairs Committee earlier on. I served on the foundation board. Um AAA actually approaches individuals, inviting them to be program chair. So when I received the invitation, like when they asked, would you be willing? I think because of Bob Keith and because of what he instilled in me, the answer was, yeah, but I did. Your dad was not retired yet. I did have to talk to um, Bob and Margie because I told them, I said, this was offered to me. It's going to be a lot of work, um, you know, 
I'm going to be using some of Oak Tree's time to do this. There's obviously times I'm going to be working in the evenings on this, but I needed their okay too because, you know, whatever. And they, without hesitation, saying this is a great thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that brings us to the third BK. Yes. Um, I thought for sure you were going to just say Bob Kemp. I know. <laughs> so you threw us all for a loop uh, when you said Band of Kemp's. Yes. Um but obviously, you've been with us here at Oak Tree for like, what is it now, 20 years? Almost. Uh, it'll be 19 years, I believe, in June. That's in January. Cool. Yeah. So I was a young, I was a young lad when you, you were first, a young lad when you first started working here. Um, <laughs> and I guess maybe, you know, we won't, we don't need to spend too much time on this, but I just think it's really interesting. You know, first of all, I think that it's important to recognize why you were why you came on board was largely, again, due to your work with infection control. And I know you and Bob wrote infection control in the audiology clinic. So do you want to just start there and talk about how did well, that So, so the, the, the way that I actually met your dad in person is, is sort of funny. Um, so when I first came to St. Louis, um, I was director of um, audiology at St. Louis University Medical Center. We were having issues with the supplier who was you know, whatever, responsible for the audiology supplies. And I remember calling a colleague saying, I'm having issues. I'm like, do you have any suggestions? And I just remember she said, you idiot. Oak Tree Products is located in St. Louis. And I was just like, oh my God, I didn't know. Like, I'm like, I didn't know that. So anyway, so I sort of uh, met your dad over the phone that way. But when I was uh, uh, assistant professor at Wichita Wichita State University, I was coming back from a conference, and I was talking to a colleague saying, Jerry Northern, you know, approached me asking me if I could guest edit a seminars and hearing on HIV AIDS. And um, so I was talking to my colleague, and she's like, well, you got everything lined up in your head? I go, yeah. I go, but I got to find this Bob Kemp dude uh, who, um, him and Ross Roser do infection control stuff, and I got to contact him. And all of a sudden, the, somebody like taps me on the shoulder and like, are you looking for Bob Kemp? I'm like, yeah. He goes, I'm Bob Kemp. And I'm like, no way. And that's how we basically met. Did he whisper that In an to airport. You? I could barely hear him. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, man, I should have asked for, I need a million bucks. You need a million bucks? Here's a million bucks. But instead I got Bob Kemp. But um, no, so that's how we started working together. And then when I became unemployed, I worked for a startup company, things didn't go well with the product. And, you know, a lot of people got let go. Um, during that time off is when I decided I wanted to write an infection control book. And that's when I reached out to your dad, um, going, hey, would you be interested in co-writing it with me and what have you. So as a result of that, we started talking more about business and him and your mom, Margie, invited me um, to, uh, they wanted to put together a five-year business plan. They're like, AU, we want you to come in as a consultant to give us a bird's eye view of the industry that's, you know, outside of Oak Tree Products. And it was a three-day meeting. And after they that meeting, they actually said, we would like to extend, like, they didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming, but we worked so well together mm-hmm. that they're like, we'd like to extend a job offer. And I was just like, Oh my God. And Bob was like, well, I know you live in Colorado. You probably don't want to. And I said, I actually do. I want to come back to St. Louis. I do, but I want to come back on my own terms. I don't, you know, and it was just perfect. So yeah. A a million dots had to come together for you to kind of have this career trajectory that you have. Yeah. Uh, One of those dots, I guess, being when you and I started the blog together. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually, what's a blog? (laughs) I was I was looking through I went I went to your blog and I just started scrolling back to the beginning and I saw like your first post was in 2010 which oh makes sense gosh. I was a I would have been junior like a and sophomore or junior in college yeah so I was getting my you know marketing degree and so I was like I could work in the marketing department at Oak Tree yes, <laughs> which is the summers which is yeah. really funny that the like intern. we have these departments and stuff when in reality <laughs> it's just all of us just I wearing know. different hats exactly and um and so I worked closely with you but that was one of that was the first time I ever worked with you yeah it was I mean obviously here we are today doing a very similar thing just in like the 2022 version of it yeah. now we're doing a podcast instead of a blog post but that was so representative of how you know I you and I have always worked together, which is like, 
all right, we got to figure this thing out, flying by the seat of our pants. And, That's right. And lo and behold, like it, it turned into this amazing forum for you to share and kind of, I think, be the role that Bob and Margie saw when they wanted to bring you on, which is you were, have always been such a secret weapon for us because you're the liaison to the audiology community. We have an audiologist, and I feel like that's been massively I, I think also, you know, they, they they brought me in to give objective management, right? Um, uh, because they wanted to grow the business. But I, I also feel that um, our um, all our principles basically align. So, for example, just because I worked for Oak Tree, you know, I remember telling Bob, I go, um, if I don't think a product's going to work for somebody, I'm not going to sit there. And he's like, oh, no, no, of course not. And I'm like, okay, I just want to make sure we're clear, <laughs> you know, because I'm not going to start, you know, you know, whatever. So I think we were all on the same page in terms of um, different people need different solutions and not everything fits. And And if you don't, you know, believe in something, you know, you don't. I mean, when people ask me a recommendation, I always... I just say it. I, I never sit there and go, oh my God, I need to censor it. I need to make sure it's okay. It, it's and, and that's what it is. We're here to provide busy providers with supplies, options, solutions, to, to give them the information they need to make the most informed decision. And, and that's what I love. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it, it's, I don't have to, I can just be an audiologist and yeah. I can just tell people what I think and what I think, you know, and that was one of my concerns about joining a company because right. it's like, oh man, you know, as an audiologist, I was always autonomous. I was always able to go, this is what I'm dispensing and I don't feel, you know, whatever, but I, I didn't lose, I didn't lose any of that. So it yeah. all worked. It all worked. Yeah. Um. So as we kind of wrap up, come to the close, you know, I do, I just think it's so like, I think the library is a really good place to kind of conclude it. And, and I guess, you know, like where things stand with your imposter phenomenon, like, I think that it's really interesting. Like the coolest thing with that whole library thing, um, was that I didn't realize that whole room of people, you could tell that was a really special room of people. And I remember Michael and I looking at each other and we were just, so in awe and taken aback by the list of nominees that all the people that nominated you for that award was like, it was like half a page. So does that mean I'm going to get a big raise next <laughs> yeah. week? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It, so somebody at work, um, who a colleague at work asked, were you nervous? And I said, no. It, so, but let me say this, if this would have happened a year ago in person, I honestly um, don't think I could have gone on stage. I, I couldn't because I just, I probably was not at a place. Well, I probably would have forced myself, but I wouldn't have had fun. I wouldn't have, you know, I would have faked it yeah. and it would have been perfectly fine. Um, but uh, this was um, something where I was able to go, wow, like I, I am. I'm very proud and, and I'm humbled, but wow, you know? Yeah. And, um, so it was Julie Jackovich. She said, were you nervous? I said, no, these are my people, man. Mm -hmm. I'm like, it was like being at a wedding, totally like at my wedding like people, and just yeah. going, oh my God. And it just, I wish more, um, I wish there was a bigger room. I wish more people could come, um, simply because uh, I look back at um, uh, of all the different honors and awards recipients. It's just an incredible event to 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 go to and and just um, reflect on you know the contributions of many different people. And for me to be um, forever a recipient of the Samuel F. Liburger Award, which, you know, I, I'm in the same company of, um, other recipients, Mead Killian and, um, Dr. Singh and David Pre David Preves and Earl Hartford and Elaine Saunders. It's, it's, it's nuts. Yeah. It's crazy. It is pretty crazy. Yeah. But I think it's, again, it's like, you're, it's cool that you're acknowledging that. Cause I think, again, it's part of this thing of like, taking a deep breath and recognizing you've done a lot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that 
and owning it, owning owning your success. Owning it. Well, it's funny because during the group hug, so we, you know, we have a, the company has a, for people who don't know, we don't literally hug ourselves, but we, (laughs) we have a company meeting every day, right? Um, Before the phones open, just to say hi and just whatever. And it was funny because I remember somebody asked, um, uh, wow, like whatever. And um, they said something like, oh, you know, how was your speech? And I remember I just said, I'm really proud. It was really good. Yeah. And and I could have never have acknowledged or said that um, uh, 10 years ago and then two years ago. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to um, be recognized, but it's, for me, it's nice to be able to actually uh, enjoy it. Yeah, enjoy it. <laughs> bask in it. And bask, bask <laughs> in the glow. <laughs> Awesome. Well, this has been fun. I'm really glad that we you finally came on. Uh, and I was so far away down so the hall. Far, so far away. Um, but no, this has been the, the, a great first in-person podcast episode. I, I really do. I think that a lot of people are going to really appreciate this whole topic of imposter phenomenon. And thanks for being so candid about it, because I think that you being willing to be so uh, vulnerable and just transparent about this is probably going to really resonate with some people out there. So I think it's really cool. Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Future Ear Radio. For more content like this, just head over to futureear.co where you can read all the articles that I've been writing these past few years on the worlds of voice technology and hearables and how the two are beginning to intersect. Thanks for tuning in and I'll chat with you next time.